Thank you for listening to TMA's Practice Well podcast. TMA, helping you improve the health of all Texans. Hi there. I'm Yvonne Moonkun, TMA's Quality Practice Management Consultant and regular contributor to TMA Practice Well podcast. I have spent the entirety of my adult life in healthcare as a registered nurse, counselor, and now a quality consultant with TMA. I am passionate about facilitating a healthy Texas by supporting the physicians who live and serve the communities throughout our amazing state. I hope you find inspiration and guidance in this episode. Did you know that you can claim CME credit for many of the TMA Practice Well podcasts? Just go to www.texmed.org forward slash CME to go. That's www.texmed.org forward slash CMETO. G-O, to register for your podcast and follow the instructions to claim CME. Policies and Standards of the Texas Medical Association, the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, and the American Medical Association require that speakers and planners for continuing medical education activities disclose any relevant financial relationship they may have with commercial entities whose products, devices, or services may be discussed in the content of the CME activity. The planners and speakers of this program have nothing to disclose. Please be advised that the information and opinions presented as part of this podcast should not be used or referred to as a primary legal source and does not replace the advice of your health care attorney. Good morning, everyone. Our, um, our topic this morning is uh, value-based care, transitioning to value-based care uh, via a phased approach. All right, so our agenda. What is value-based care? Uh, why are we concerned about value-based care? Why are we talking about that today? And then um, preparing your practice for that transition. All right, so what is value-based care? Um, at its most basic, Value-based care is a a business model and a way of providing care that incorporates quality with reimbursement, uh, resulting in a model that essentially pays on a per-member, per-month basis or per-episode of care. Again, it it depends on how the the contracting and the business model is developed. Um, These are paid by commercial or government payers, ideally allowing for enhanced services and more meaningful time with patients. Um, Participating providers delivering efficient care and and meeting quality measures may significantly increase their revenue through performance-related bonus payments. In the current environment, several 
value-based organizations have survived the devastating effects that COVID-19 has had on uh, the healthcare economy. Value-based care, or VBC for short, is not a new concept. You may have heard it referred to as at-risk or partial risk plans, value-based performance, value-based medicine, pay-for-performance, lots of different terminology being thrown around out there that you may have heard of. CMS began this journey in 2008 with the passage of the Medicare Improvements for Patients and Providers Act. And their three-part aim remains the ultimate goal, better care for individuals, better health for populations, lower cost. And the fourth aim was added, increasing physician satisfaction. So that is what we want to focus on as well. Now, why are we concerned about value-based care? Well, because it's coming. Right now, less than 20% of Medicare spending is value-based. CMS has made it clear that they want closer to 100% of spending to be value-based. And it's not just CMS. Employers and commercial health plans are also driving the shift from fee-for-service, which in effect, fee-for-service rewards quantity, whereas value-based care models focus on quality. Embracing this change is not really a choice. CMS aims to have 100% of Medicare providers in two-sided risk arrangements by 2025. CMS wants half of Medicaid and commercial contracts to be in value-based reimbursement models by 2025. Employers and commercial health plans are shifting from fee-for-service to value-based care models focusing on quality. The economic impact of COVID-19 has been globally astronomic. Healthcare has often been considered as recession-proof for the most part, uh, but apparently it is not coronavirus-proof. According to an MGMA survey completed in April 2020, about 97% of practices have experienced some type of negative financial impact due to COVID-19, highlighting some of the crucial flaws in our traditional fee-for-service business model. Value-based care as a business model and care delivery model has been mentioned frequently in many recent publications as having weathered the COVID-19 storm with much less difficulty. According to Adam Bowler, CEO of U.S. International Development Finance Corporation and previously the director of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, risk-based organizations have not experienced negative financial impact as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. This has been echoed by several others involved in healthcare economics around the country. Brad Smith, the current director for the Center of Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, during a webinar on May 21st, 2020 said, I think we're only going to double down on our commitment to value-based care based on what we've seen in the public health emergency. All right, so let's talk about preparing for your transition. The uh, American Medical Association has um, an education tool on their website and they have five steps to preparing your practice for value-based care. Um, essentially, you want to identify those leading health conditions or procedures. You need to know what you're trying to improve before you work on improving, right? Identify barriers in your current payment system. Identify potential solutions to reduce spending through improved care. You want to understand the patient population, including non-clinical factors, to identify patients suitable for the program or alternative payment model. And those non-clinical factors, obviously, social determinants of health. You want to define the services to be covered, identify measures of utilization and spending under physician control, 
I'll talk a little bit about that later. Develop a core set of outcomes-focused quality measures, including mechanisms for regularly updating those quality measures, obtain and analyze data needed to demonstrate financial feasibility for practice payers and patients, uh, identify mechanisms for ensuring adequacy of payment, and seek support from other physicians, physician groups, and patients. All right, so let's dive in a little bit deeper here. This is a gradual change. This is a marathon, not a sprint. So first and foremost, pack your patients. Successful transformation will be a long journey. Even a two-year transformation would be optimistic. So starting with performance-paced bonus structure on top of an existing fee-for-serve model is the least disruptive way to dip your toe in the BBC world. Billing is still done as it always has been done. Insurance payments received as usual. Um, but this gives you an opportunity to choose appropriate quality measures um, and then refine and optimize workflows to assist you in meeting those quality measures. You know, once you start meeting those measures, you can begin introducing the concept of risk with shared savings. Moving to that upside risk model would require a more significant change in billing and reimbursement structures, such as your per member per month, for example. When you are fully at risk, the percentage for upside share is more significant um, and you face the downside risk as well, meaning you will have to pay money back to the payer if you don't meet the quality measures uh, or if the cost of providing care is above the agreed upon amount of money. Now, this isn't simply about changing the way physicians or other providers are paid. This requires a realignment of physicians and providers towards delivering proactive care and prevention. The goal of which is to provide clinicians with access to a patient's pertinent history of care, team members organized to collaborate efficiently, and increased patient access to resources, both for preventative and acute care, all of which leads to the ultimate goal of improved patient outcomes, reduced costs, and ideally increased physician or provider satisfaction. All right, so. We need to choose our quality measures. Do you want to choose the quality measures that are meaningful to you and your patients? I think when uh, MACRA first came about in 2015 and, and the QPP, you know, MIPS, all of those different acronyms we throw out, there were tons of quality measures. It was all brand new and there was a lot of question about how do I choose those? How many do I need to choose? It was like checking boxes. We're several years into this now. Some of those quality measures have been retired and new ones have emerged. But the important thing, again, is making sure that these are meaningful to you and your patients. Are you seeing trends within uh, a certain patient population in your patient panel? Think about the interventions that could improve those patient outcomes. Those are the quality measures you want to focus on. So it won't feel like actually checking a box and having to just meet a requirement. It'll actually be some information that you can do something with. Through motivational interviewing, you can determine what health outcomes truly matter to your patients. Not only does this help guide your choice of quality measures, but it can also get more buy-in from your patients. So they're focusing on something that is important to them as well. Are there things that you're already doing well? If so, pick that low-hanging fruit and choose quality measures that relate to what you're already doing or to things that you can easily institute without too much change in your workflow or staff, you know, et cetera. And be realistic. 
Consider your practice structure and the resources available to you. Again, this is a marathon, not a sprint. It is okay to choose quality measures that are more basic as you ramp up your practice culture and resources to focus on quality improvement. Next, we want to examine our workflow. So before you start randomly changing things in your practice, examine your current workflow. You don't want to fix what isn't broken, right? Based on the quality measures you've chosen, does your current workflow support the gathering and documentation of necessary data? Does it provide efficiency? Does your current workflows utilize your staff efficiently? Is your staff functioning at the top of their licensure capabilities? Does your workflow provide necessary patient education and engagement strategies? Do you have the variety of disciplines represented on your staff that will be most helpful to your patients and to you for the purpose of meeting those quality goals and those patient outcomes. Keep what is working, throw out what isn't working, and add in the components you're missing. Physician and staff buy-in is critical. Uh, likewise, physician and staff suggestions will not only provide real-world situations for people who are, you know, boots on the ground, but Incorporating those suggestions um, and recommendations increases staff and physician compliance with these new protocols. A lot of patient buy-in, patient engagement is associated with patient education. What do your patients need to be healthier individuals? What do they need to take control of their chronic condition and experience better outcomes? You know, as I mentioned earlier, there are some things that are within physician control and there are many things that are not in physician control. That's, that's the patient engagement piece. Lastly, we want to be efficient. We want to experience cost savings and uh, we can't do that without efficiency. Certainly keeping patients out of the hospital and ER will help reduce global costs, but in order to reduce costs at the practice level, we have to work smarter, not harder. All right, so let's see an example of workflow change. So here's an old workflow. Now this is obviously a little oversimplified, but this is generally how most patient visits go in just about any specialty. So we have uh, a patient coming into the waiting room, MA comes out to call the patient back from the waiting room. They stop at a triage room to get weight and vital signs. MA might write that down on a piece of paper that they're gonna enter into the EMR later, take the patient to the exam room, asks the patient the reason for the visit. There, perhaps there's a, a laptop or some type of computer to document in the room, um, and they start typing away, ask if anything's changed since the last visit, those types of things. And then the MA tells the patient that the physician will be right in, leaves the room. Perhaps they might even say, here's your gown, undress down to your underwear or whatever they say, right? And then they leave the room. They might go to uh, a PC and enter the information if they didn't already do that in the exam room. The physician then enters the exam room, greets the patients, asks what they're in for today. The patient repeats everything that they just said to the MA. The physician completes the exam, writes orders for procedures or meds, gives some brief patient instruction and tells them to have a good day, leaves the exam room, and then goes back to their desk to type in notes. So what's wrong with that workflow? It's kind of what we've been doing forever. It isn't patient-centered, for one thing. The MA could be utilized to do more and gather more information. We could have more efficient use of technology. It's not necessarily holistic. Minimal information about the patient is gathered other than the presenting concern. And generally in this model, everyone feels rushed, including the patient. So 
how do we fix that to uh, make it more patient-centered and to uh, help us meet quality measures? I am surprised how many practices still do not use their patient portal at all or to its fullest potential with their electronic health record. Most EHR software has an associated patient portal these days. You can use it for visit planning, communication of lab or imaging results, communication with patients in between visits, triaging. There are lots of uses for the patient portal. When a patient schedules a visit, you know, directing them to the patient portal to review the medical history, medication symptoms, allows them to submit that information prior to the scheduled visit. The physician or, or MA can review that information, perhaps even a day or more before that patient comes in if they've done it ahead of time. So if you create that system where you do that a couple of days ahead and you get used to doing that, then your, your visit planning becomes more efficient. And the MA can then move quickly through that information submitted by the patient and, and move on through the visit. So start with that patient portal. The MA go and call the patient from the waiting room as usual. You head straight to the exam room rather than stopping to collect $200. You can go straight to the room and do vital signs in the exam room and have the, the conversation and rapport started immediately, having your technology available to document right away. Um, the MA can then review that pre-visit information from the patient portal, complete the necessary portions that may not have been answered, leave the exam room, inform the physician that the patient is ready, right? So when you take the patient right to the exam room and complete those vital signs, you know, you, you don't take that extra time for the patient to stop and unload a purse or a, a coat and, you know, stand on the scale and sit down to take the vital signs and then get up and have to pick up all of that stuff and then head back to the room. So it's small things like that can create significant efficiencies. If you've got a really good, robust EHR system, everything that the MA is documenting in the room should be able to be seen in real time by the physician who is preparing to enter the exam room. You know, once the, the physician comes in, they're able to discuss um, the condition. If there were any point of care labs done prior to the physician entry to the exam room, assuming all of that is integrated, they'll have those results in real time to talk to the patient about. We're going to discuss that a little bit more when we talk about technology. So in this visit, the page, it's patient-centered, it documents healthcare maintenance activities, facilitates patient engagement, and includes patient education. The patient has the opportunity to communicate those signs and symptoms, answer a few health maintenance questions, and review med lists before arriving at the office for the visit. They can be taken directly to one location rather than having to be moved repeatedly throughout the office. The vital signs are taken in private. The MA has the opportunity again to review all that patient reported information from the portal and ask any questions that might have been skipped or not answered. The MA informs the patient if there are vital signs. And that's an important thing. How many people, how many times have you gone to your own care provider and your blood pressure has been taken and they, they don't tell you what it is unless you ask? We want to tell our patients. We want them to get used to hearing these numbers, learning what their baseline is and what that means to their overall health. This is patient engagement. Let's say the patient came in with a complaint of burning and pain with urination. Before the physician come in, the MA would request a urine sample based on accepted standing orders, based on evidence-based treatment and on patient-reported symptoms. There would be just an, uh, an algorithm already set up ahead of time so that there are key things that 
uh, the MA listens for that would lead him or her to provide a certain point of care testing before the physician comes in. So once that task is complete, the patient's ready to be seen by the physician. And while the physician is in there greeting the patient and beginning the exam, the MA is in the lab running that urinalysis. And again, assuming we have integrated technology, that UA result is automatically sent to the EMR. The physician in the exam room can see it in real time and respond to that information while still in the exam room with the patient. Um, and this helps to create a well-informed and meaningful visit. It's productive, right? The physician can then e-prescribe an antibiotic, lets the patient know that the MA will be back in to provide additional information and schedule a follow-up. Physician leaves, MA enters the room, provides additional patient education materials, schedules the follow-up patient, asks the patient if they have any questions, make sure they answer all of those. And then, by the way, reminds the patient that you need to schedule your mammogram, you're due. So they give the appropriate information for that, and the patient is then escorted to the exit. The patient doesn't have to stop at checkout because EMA has already completed scheduled follow-up visit in the room. So these minor changes in workflow will facilitate meeting several types of quality measures, including your patient satisfaction, preventive care, and your interoperability measures. So we need to develop appropriate policies and procedures, um, communicate expectations that staff follow these for consistency and standardization. We want to make our workflows multidisciplinary, providing care coordination and referrals for appropriate services, including those social services to assist with social determinants of health. So again, an example of how that workflow can be tweaked a little bit. Let's talk about patient engagement. Um, because again, as I mentioned, you can't be responsible for everything. That's true. The most common concern I hear from physicians with regard to value-based care is, how can I be held accountable for patient outcomes when I don't control patient compliance? And that is a valid concern. It is That is absolutely true. And we can't do it for them. That's not really our purpose. We're there to diagnose, treat, educate, and empower our patients to care for themselves. If we are completely honest with ourselves, we have to admit that we don't have the time to spend with each patient that we would like. The time we need to provide um, necessary education, to, to simply talk to the patient, to discern where their difficulties lie. When you need to see 25 patients a day in order to keep the lights on and your staff paid, you don't have the time to spend examining the reasons non-compliant. That is a direct side effect of fever service care. And there are some patients that will just dig in their heels and refuse to change. That is why the threshold to meet quality measures is not set at 100%. Meeting quality measures, depending on the quality measure, sometimes they're at 85%, 90%, something of that nature, because the assumption is that there are going to be people that either don't do well for various reasons, can't do well for various reasons. Um, the expectation is not that you're perfect. Another reason we lack patient engagement is our lack of understanding of what is important to the patient, what the patient considers a successful outcome. We know the, the, the clinical components of health and wellness and disease. So, so we obviously have uh, you know, outcomes in our mind that would you know, we would list as successful. The patient's idea of what is a success might be a little bit different. So with motivational interviewing, we gently direct the patient 
to determine what is important to them and what needs to change in their lifestyle to reach that outcome. Remember, this is about baby steps. I'm helping the patient realize the changes they want to make, can make, things that are possible. And they feel like, you know, again, through motivational interviewing, they feel like, you know, they're, they're coming up with those themselves and, and they, you get more buy-in that way. Providing resources and access will greatly improve patient engagement. When patients can get appointments, they're more satisfied. Obviously, if they can't get an appointment, they can't be seen, they get frustrated. When patients don't understand their treatment plan, they simply just resort to previous behaviors, whether they're effective or not. So we make sure they get what they need, refer them to other disciplines. Again, doctor, you do not have to do everything yourself. You do not have to be providing all of the patient education yourself. Um, you do not have to be doing all of that motivational interviewing yourself. Utilize your staff. Let your staff be part of that solution. Care coordination and care management can provide that necessary support. All right, let's move on to technology. You cannot transition to value-based care without technology. The task of gathering and reporting on data alone is next to impossible without robust technology. We need to be able to document easily and efficiently in a user-friendly electronic health record in discoverable fields for the purpose of retrieving that information in real time so we can gauge how we're doing. Without that technology, you would have to manually go through patient charts to track and, and then manually report data. Way too time consuming, not financially sustainable, and very much susceptible to human error. Not that technology is error free, but it is quicker and easier to validate electronic data than to go through an entire patient panel of charts manually. Interoperability is necessary for efficiency and to reduce error. Integration, you want your practice management system, your electronic medical record, if you've got point of care equipment, all of that, all of that can be integrated into one system so that they all speak to each other and the information flows from one to the other. The less manual data entry that is required, the less chance there is for error and more efficient that process will be. So for instance, again, let's say you have a, a CLIA waived Clinitech for your analysis that is integrated with your electronic medical record. Once that sample is processed, the result is automatically transmitted to the patient EMR in the appropriate place in the patient record. So first of all, there's no need to go back and, and manually enter those results. So it's efficient in that respect and reduces any data entry error. But again, that result can readily be seen by the physician in the exam room with the patient in real time so the efficiency and timeliness allows the physician to discuss the results with the patient and prescribe that treatment immediately. E-prescribing reduces issues with lost prescriptions, delays in prescribing, problems with handwriting, no more calls from the uh, pharmacy saying they couldn't read a script. Tracking your referral sources is a, a great way to target your marketing if you're looking to increase your referrals. Knowing where they're coming from is a good place to start, and, and an automated system is uh, much easier to, to look things up in than our old card index used to be. The patient portal is a great way to communicate with patients. Again, I can't stress enough how important it is to use these patient portals to, to the utmost of the ability to use them, right? 
you, you'll be surprised. Patients will not, the majority of patients will not overuse these forms of communication. And, and they really are an excellent way for patients to have access to healthcare providers. And by the way, doctor, you do not have to be the only one who answers these patient messages. You can share that responsibility with different members of your staff. Let everybody be a part of being the team that helps that patient. Registries are amazing to help you stratify your patient's risk for exacerbation of chronic conditions. A registry enables you to one, track all of that data, report on that data, but most importantly, it enables you to target those patients at most risk for poor outcome. That way you can focus your interventions on those patients where you'll have the most impact. Lastly, we're gonna talk about the clinical resources. So your main clinical resource is going to be your people, of course, but there are some tools that can help monitoring patients and staying in touch with patients. Telemedicine is a great way to check in with patients for any type of prescription medication monitoring. Say you start somebody on a, a new medication and you, know, you wanna check in with them in a month, see how the medication is working for them. Uh, telemedicine is a great way to do that. Keeps the patient from having to uh, take time off work and sit in traffic and try to find a parking space, that kind of thing. It also helps with uh, showing that progress on lifestyle changes. Again, those check-ins for chronic conditions. Behavioral health counseling, mental health counseling has, has long been using telemedicine as a, a great resource for uh, reaching patients. You can use it for care management, care coordination. It's efficient and convenient for both physician and patient. I think this last year, of course, has catapulted telemedicine to the forefront it's not a new thing. It's existed for many, many years. Of course, you know, the public health emergency really brought it to the forefront. So many people are, are used to using it now, have become acquainted with it, and, and find that they like it. Um, remote patient monitoring is a great way to garner patient engagement. It can improve patient understanding of their chronic condition and, and their progress um, and help them avoid acute exacerbations that uh, often land them in the ER or result in hospitalization. There are many companies that have come to fruition here in the last year in particular that will assist with delivering equipment to patients, teaching them how to use that equipment, and some will even do the monitoring and then alert physicians uh, or practices when um, you know, values are out of range or, or something of that nature. And these are, they're becoming quite skilled at, at making the billing for remote patient monitoring are pretty easy. RPM is reimbursed by Medicare and many commercial payers. Of course, there must be documented medical necessity, right? But again, once your patients are using that equipment at home, they're seeing their own numbers, right? And, um, and they're able to you know, start to get a feel for what their baseline is. They start to understand how they feel when their blood sugar is high or low or when their blood pressure is elevated as you know, they start to really understand those things. Employee other disciplines. Um, now this may be cost prohibitive in your current practice, but certainly engaging these other disciplines can help take uh, the load off the physician. Some practices will share a case manager or a dietitian. There are certainly ways to lead your patients to um, these other folks for, for help. Again, you don't have to do everything yourself, build your team. 
in a fee-for-service environment, that's not usually possible, again, because it's cost prohibitive. A lot of these services that we want to offer our patients aren't paid on fee-for-service basis. We'd love to do more nutrition counseling. That oftentimes is not a reimbursable service. Other patient education, you know, it's time spent that is not reimbursed. In value-based care, you can choose how those resources are utilized to keep your patients well. Um, and I'm going to leave you with this one last story. I functioned as a, a care manager and health coach in a primary care practice in North Carolina that specialized in patients with chronic health conditions. And this is my favorite story. We had a, a new patient come in, had an appointment with one of our physicians, a middle-aged, female, overweight, hypertensive, type 2 diabetes, all of which had been present for several years. In, in his treatment plan, the physician referred her for health coaching, nutrition counseling, and a meeting with the PharmD for medication management. We were fortunate in that we had all of these services within our clinic. I met with her first, and on the day of her appointment, we sat down and I asked her why she was seeing me that day. And she said, Dr. Warkup told me to see you. And I chuckled, that made me laugh. And then I commented, well, you didn't have to come. Why did you come in here today? And then I went on and I stated, you know, your diabetes has been there for a while. Your hypertension, you've had that for years. Your, your weight has been problematic for several years. Your general health has been uncontrolled for several years. So why is today the day to make the change? She looked at me and she said to me, no one ever cared before now. So yes, this was a grown woman with a life and responsibilities, accountability for herself, but it was obvious that in her previous healthcare experiences, she didn't feel cared for. And it was obvious that she didn't fully understand the gravity of her healthcare situation and the investment that was needed in her lifestyle change. That's why we're in healthcare. Now this clinic was completely on a value-based model, allowing the ability to use these resources in the way that you know, we could meet people where they were. It was a, a pleasure and a privilege to, to be a part of that. So I just wanna leave you with saying, don't be scared of value-based care. There are some benefits to it. The transition is best done slowly so that you can get used to the changes and tweak those workflows and, and whatnot, but it is possible to do. I thank you so much for your time and attention today. To claim CME for today's program, go to www.texmed.org forward slash C-M-E-T-O-G-O. Register for your podcast and follow the instructions to claim CME. We appreciate you and ask that you like and follow for future episodes. Until then, stay well.